Welcome to the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast. Thought-provoking interviews with interesting guests and commentary on everything. Food, sports, God, gardening, church, politics, music, movies, comedy, you name it, we talk about it. I'm Cody Stopper. And this is Craig Morton. On this podcast, we talk to writers, teachers, activists, and we seek some wisdom. And as always, we are allergic to big words, but not to big ideas. Profound things will be said, but entirely by accident. Well, hello, Cody. <laughs> hey, Craig. How's it going? Sorry about the coughing. Are you That's- coughing? Why are you coughing? Oh, well, I'm coughing because I'm not sick. I'm just irritated. Uh, irritated. Okay. Oh. <laughs> you can't, uh, you, Craig, we need to examine. That could be uh, you having an inability to admit a weakness. Being irritated means you're in control. Being sick means you've given that up and it's happened to you. And wow. you, I'm getting deep here. You are. <laughs> you are almost as deep as my voice. Let's examine your, your, uh, inability to admit vulnerability. It's, it's, the, it's this time of year when I walk into my doctor's office, he looks at me for five minutes and goes, Oh yeah. Bronchitis. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Seen this before only 20 times. So uh, you're used to it. Well, Craig, we've got some guests today. We do Cody. We do. We've got Toby Tobin. Who's been with us before. Uh, we call him the pie guy. We call him the pie guy. No kidding. <laughs> so, yeah. We're, we're looking forward to that trip. <laughs> Invitation stands. That's good. <laughs> uh, someday we'll make it up there or out there or over there. So yeah, for Cody, it's a straight shot. Over. Me, yeah. I got I, I to go north and turn right. And we've got Regina Shan Stolzfus uh, from Goshen College. Um, Cody and I were having a conversation about where you taught. And we both knew it was Goshen, but I told Cody, no, that wasn't the question. What floor is he she? He wanted on? me to be very specific. I wanted to be specific. Like, Dude, I don't even know if they have floors at the, at the college. So I had to send up. Cody some pictures of, of Goshen College. Yes, there's at least nothing. three floors. Yes. <laughs> I even unknowingly named a fantasy football team after the mascot of Goshen, the fight in Amish. Mm. That's not our mascot, though. <laughs> I know. Craig told me it was a joke. He told me it was a joke from back in the 70s or something. And, and I've got this voice thing. So a lot of time I'm going to just mute my, my uh, microphone. And if there's a really important question that I want Cody to ask, I'll just wave him down probably. Or oh, something boy. Like oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, <clears> boy. <throat> but I'm going to fade out and have a bunch of some coughing right now. Then I'll be back. So Okay. Well, while Craig is coughing up whatever over there. Uh, I'm going to allow you all to kind of introduce yourselves and share a little bit about your background. Let's begin with Dr. Stoltzfus. I mean, Regina, sorry, I don't need to be too <laughs> formal here. We'll begin with you and talk about your, uh, your background, where you're from, and how did you get started in this specific work that you're doing? Okay, so I am originally from Cleveland, Ohio, and lived there at this point, half of my life and now live in Northern Indiana um, and teach at Goshen College. Um, The sort of Reader's Digest condensed version of how I got into doing 
whatever it is I do, which is pretty much going around talking about systemic oppression a lot. Um, I think I blame my home church. Uh, we were a, we, um, it's now a predominantly African-American church, but when I was coming up in it, it was an intentionally interracial uh, black and white church. And um, I grew up in the shadow of the civil rights movement. And so conversations about race and awareness of what it meant to be a racialized person and what it meant to be in community across racial lines um, was my normal and grew up to begin to understand that it was not everyone's normal, not many people's normal, um, but it sort of set me, it gave me the interest of thinking about, um, and these are very, this early thinking is very unformed and very um, non-systematic, but the question of why do we have, why do we have racism? Why can't we um, all get along? That kind of question. And um, yeah, that's the start of it and grew into an understanding from reading lots of things and having conversations with people and then as an adult, finding people who are interested in having those conversations with me, one of whom is my dear friend, Dr. Shearer. <laughs> and uh, Dr. Shearer, do, do you prefer a little more formality? I, I, I think you don't. <laughs> I actually don't. Yeah. Tobin, of course, is fine. Yes, okay. Yeah, so my roots are rather peripatetic born in Harrisonburg, Virginia, spent some of my early growing up years in Southern Ontario, spent time in Northern Indiana in the community that where Regina is now situated as a youth, but did most of my growing up years in Southeast Pennsylvania, Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, and then went to college in Virginia. And we've moved around since then, settling in Lancaster for a while, Pennsylvania, we were in Chicago for a while, and now we're in Missoula, Montana. My uh, slightly different path than Regina to the work of anti-racism, it came out of the six years we spent in New Orleans. My wife and I, both our sons were born there working with Mennonite Central Committee, where I came face to face with my own failings as a white person, my own racism, and then had some very good mentors there through organizations like People's Institute for Survival Beyond and other local activists who in the end said, you know, you really need to go back and work with your own people. And that... Uh, brought me to accept an invitation to work at issues of racism in the Mennonite church. And out of that began partnering with, with Regina and we have been working, that would have been in the early nineties. So it's been the neighborhood of three decades that we've worked together. And uh, out of your relationship now, notice in the book, it, you, that's your, your keystone. You build your foundation upon the relationship that you two have and the work that you did and how you, you, you went about that, you know, away from each other and then kind of back together, but always this thread of a relationship. Um, why do you begin your book with that, with the start of your relationship as such a keystone uh, element to unpacking anti-racism spirituality? One of the things that has been very important for both of us, and we had the wisdom, I think, um, I don't know that we knew that we had this wisdom, how important that would be, 
But the wisdom to articulate was that if we were going to collaborate and do anti-racism work together and think about racism and think about um, really hard things and lead people through a process that often felt, well, it was difficult. Um, we needed to be more, our relationship needed to be more than just about the work. And so we have been very intentional and that's been a good practice for me in terms of other relationships that I have with people um, that being human with one another and uh, being friends and knowing about each other's lives in addition to or outside of the work makes the work possible. And so that has been a real foundation, I think, for us. And so it made all the sense in the world to have that be, as you said, the cornerstone, the foundation of, of what we wrote in the book. I think the only thing I'll add is that we also recognized and tried to address an inherent tension in that, in that our observation is that most conversations about racism in the white community tend to focus solely on relationships, mm -hmm. sort of suggesting that the only way forward is to get a friend from another racial group. Mm -hmm. And that is not at all what we're trying to promote in this book. But we also recognize that in the midst of the struggle, it was the relationship that kept us there, as Regina was suggesting, that kept us engaged. And I think there is just sort of a practical storytelling measure that we know we can invite people to explore issues that they might not other spend otherwise spend time with through the vehicle of story. Mm -hmm. And there was a narrative that we had to tell about our work together. And it, it captured all the themes that we wanted to eventually unpack more analytically in the book as a whole, but it was that story that got us there. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, in the uh, opening there, Regina, that your introduction to us, you, you dropped a word in there that Craig instantly picked up on and it's in the book there quite a bit too. Um, it's the term racialized. And uh, he mentions it as a verb. It's a huge concept. And he wanted to know if you could maybe unpack that a bit, uh, this idea of racial. What does it mean? What does that mean as a verb? Yeah. So um, it means to be placed into the system of racial categories that we have devised in this country and other countries have their own versions of it, often aided by by what we've done in the United States. So it's a recognition of that, that uh, system, that hi the hierarchy of that system. It's a recognition that for uh, people of color and um, probably in the sense of the book, because we focus on anti-Blackness, um, thinking about being a Black person means to be categorized by, by race primarily like that is the thing that um that that people know about me and many people will make assumptions about that but it also um and i'll just uh land on this and and let tobin talk about it it also acknowledges that in a country such as ours that has such a profound racialized history all of us get put into that hierarchy, but we often don't think about white people as being racialized and what that means. Right. right. 
Yeah, I don't know if I have much to add to the whole idea of racialization that Regina's just, I think, done a great job describing. I mean, I think it, it is another tension. We're always expre- uh, exploring tensions in this book and in our own relationship that on the one hand, we know the way forward is not to be colorblind, to say, okay, we know that there are inherent issues with race as a construct. It's got white supremacy baked into it from its inception. So you could make the argument, therefore, you just shove that idea, the category aside, and you don't deal with it because it is so problematic. But we know that it, pragmatically, that's not going to work. We have to go. So what we talk about in the book is we have to go deeper into the discussion about race, not back away from it. And so having a vocabulary to talk about racialized identities, to talk about anti-Blackness, to talk about whiteness in ways that become natural, normal, and frequent are going to get us to where we need to go in ways that backing away from those conversations just has been proven time and time again not to to help us move forward. Yeah. We do that in the context of so many people in this country for generations being socialized to do the exact opposite, to not notice race, to not talk about it, to pretend that it doesn't exist, which is very problematic for all kinds of reasons, but it doesn't um, it doesn't allow us to get to the things that we need to face in order to actually um, confront race racism. Yeah, and I think it was a. I brought that up right after the discussion of your relationship, simply because I wanted to know from your own. Uh, your own relationship perspective. How has that racialization and categorization and all that crept in that, Tobin, maybe you didn't even notice, but Regina, maybe you did, or or even vice versa, or did, is it even to this day, you, you, you two have had a relationship now for 30, 30 years? Mm-hmm. Are you still, is there still times where that creeps in? Or are you now so old pros, Tobin, that <laughs> it doesn't even show up? Well, I, I would defer to my colleague and friend to say whether it shows up. I'm guessing it does. I, I would surmise, and Regina, correct me if this isn't true. I think we've gotten better at naming things as they happen, mm-hmm. dealing with them before they become an issue. Um, I mean, we pay a lot of attention when we're doing public speaking engagements together of who speaks first, who's initiating things because there are very predictable patterns that a white male like I will fall into. We know there are predictable patterns about a people's assumption about Regina that we will fall into if we're not careful. So Mm -hmm. I think we're more proactive. I think we don't spend as much energy worrying about it. We know there's gonna be stuff that comes up and we're gonna deal with it and it's gonna be okay. Um, I I think it probably doesn't happen as often, but what do you think, Regina? Yeah, I would agree with you. And I think that, the utility of that pattern that we've developed comes when we are doing the work, we don't have to, and, and another colleague pointed this out to us, that That's we right. just right. sort of automatically um, know how to steer things when we're working with groups of people without even really talking about it. And I was I was actually unaware of that until it was mentioned that we do this thing. Um, but it's like, you know, if a comment comes up um, that we know which one of us needs to like jump on that right now, it's it's really become easy to move into it. I think also like allowing space. 
I think we have to have, we, we, we don't have to have as many meetings after the meeting. Does that mm -hmm. seem right to you? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, just to pull apart the anecdote a little bit more, what Regina referenced, it was our colleague, Liz Song Mandel, who works with us in Widerstand Consulting. And she's begun to become more and more part of the work we do. And we were debriefing with a group we'd done an audit for. And then the three of us were debriefing afterwards. And she goes, hey, hey, what was that thing you guys keep doing where you just look at each other on the freaking Zoom screen and something happens and then you do stuff? And that just Regina described. That, yeah. that comes from 30 years of just anticipating there's a limited realm of responses we're going to get in a given scenario. We've been through it time and time again, and we sort of know the roles we need to fill. And so a glance can make that work in a ways it wouldn't have been able to do in the first decade or so. Sometimes we do have to text, but yeah, it's true. most yeah. of the time it's yeah. like, it just goes. Yeah. It's a real gift. I love it. That's great. Yeah. And, and of course, it's born from years of interactions and, and things like that. But uh, I can imagine maybe at the beginning, I don't know. So I grew up in a very predominantly white culture, uh, southeastern Idaho. So um, anytime I'm still I'm 40 now, and I've had a lot more interactions with people beyond my mono monoculture. But uh, every time I still feel like I'm walking in so clunky. So um, I don't know, like, am I do, am I doing the right things? Am I saying the right things? Am I doing it in the right way? Am I, you know what I mean? Like too much consciousness, I suppose. I don't know. Is that, <laughs> is that a thing? I don't know. I, think it's I, I, I don't uh, go ahead. So I, I was, I was going to say that I think for white men, it can never be a thing, at least not for a long time. Um, I think we've been so positioned to not have to think about our race or gender identity as white men that it's really hard to imagine a scenario where we're too conscious of that. Um, but you were gonna say something different, Regina. Yeah, I well, I agree with that, but I also think, and maybe it's because um, my primary audience is uh, 18 to 22 year olds and I'm in peace studies. And so I talk to, I'm with a lot of students that are, um, you know, they're, they're down for social justice, right? And they um, are learning to understand systemic oppression. And there's this kind of, um, of arc that, uh, that, that of becoming more confident in, um, in being able to say things and be okay if you say the wrong thing, right? Because that because, because we do, like we say the wrong thing. And that's one of the reasons that I really um, appreciate the gift of time that a college semester gives us over against a workshop or something that's more short-sighted. There's, there's work that can happen in both of those spaces, but um, it does take time to live into a new way of understanding the world, a new way of understanding the, the identities that have been bestowed upon us and make it make sense with the identities that we craft for ourselves, um, that our families, that we, that, you know, we are socialized into families and communities. Uh, and so it's a lot of work that 
has to happen to be able to navigate through all of that stuff. And it can be scary. Um, and especially because language is so fluid and it evolves. And I personally, um, and I can't remember if we talked about this in the book or not, but one of the things that I don't like to get hung up on um, when working with groups is that whole language thing, whether it's a debate about what is the proper label or whether it's people overcoming their fear um, of saying the wrong thing, like it needs to be dealt with. But I think that sometimes that becomes a place where we can spend a lot of time um, and then next week or next year, we have to do it all over again because the language has changed. Yeah. One thing I, I thought of right now too is how often I find people, it, it can be hard to navigate because there's, nowadays it seems like we have access to so much information that like, how can that be an excuse anymore? You know, and yet there still are people who, and and at the same time, there are people who rely on a feigned ignorance to say what they the mean or cruel things they do want to say absolutely and then at the same time but then at the same time there are legitimately people who are and so that could be that could be challenging as a professor do you encounter that a lot with the students coming in like okay some of you i know this is feigned ignorance so you can make your silly point do you encounter that um i don't as much um, as I did ooh, 15 years ago, I remember when I first started teaching, well, we've experienced this outside of the classroom too, but when I first started teaching, um, like to even, to even talk about white people, like you have to like inch your way up to it because nobody wants to be white and, you know, sort of deflecting that identity. Um, but I think that there are other ways that kind of thing comes out rather than people making provocative statements. Um, and I think that that has a lot to do with the power dynamic in the classroom. Although there have been times in the classroom where, um, where people have meant to be very provocative and um, it's meant like, okay, I need to deal with this right now. And yeah. Mm. Yep. Yeah. The feigned ignorance uh, it, that keeps popping up for me are I, I, somebody addressed it the other day and I, I wish I could remember how they worded it, but it was like, they go, oh, well, it's like the um, let's go Brandon thing, right? Like, Ah, well, you know, just, uh, oh, hi, he, he, you know, we're not, we don't mean anything by it. It's like, go oh, Brandon, how can they, you know, or the symbols, the white power symbols that a lot of people are like, no, nah, it's just you, you read that into it. Not me. I was just putting a sign up mm-hmm. kind of a thing. Yep. Frustrating. <laughs> All right. So I was prepared when I opened up the book to learn about, you know, I, I'm thinking spirituality. So I'm thinking, all right, let's do some uh, we're going to hear some disciplines. We're going to hear some, you know, practices. And, and then here comes this curveball of pop culture is one of the first things you talked about. What, why did you decide to address pop culture from the outset? Mm-hmm. Well, I guess to just 
back it up a step to say we we were very deliberate in not having this be another celebration of discipline book that was sort of a how-to manual and would reinterpret the desert fathers and mothers. That wasn't our interest. What we were wanting to do was a much more holistic reorientation to what spirituality could actually encompass. And so that move to include a discussion of pop culture from the start was very deliberate on our part to try to expand that notion out of the gate. Because it's a powerful force in society around us. There's so many ways that the assumptions behind the creation of characters and their presentation to, you know, call back to our previous conversation has been racialized, that it's a real concrete way to get some of those ideas into people's minds and hearts. Plus, we both really like books and movies. And so there was a lot of content for us to reflect on. So it was a mixture of that sort of um, rhetorical move of wanting to do that broadening from the beginning in terms of how we're designing the book, but also just because it was easy to do because we had so much to talk about and reflect on. There, um, one of the uh, items in your list of uh, 10, you know, reasons, pop culture, you know, why you were doing this one had to do with laughter and you address comedy and that it seems like here lately, comedy is such a touch point for controversy for, and maybe it's not lately. I mean, it always has happened, right? It's always been right. a controversial part because, um, Comedy is, you mentioned, you know, the jester, the person who can poke a little fun, but language being fluid and a language evolving, as you mentioned, what once was okay to say, maybe is not so more, so more, what's the word I'm looking for, isn't okay anymore to say. Um, in fact, you even mentioned a couple of, you listed comedians and two of them that you've listed have been um embroiled in controversy lately, David Chappelle, Louis C.K. Um, was that, did you think through the list of who you were going to include? Was that intentional? Let's include these people because we know they flirt with this knife's edge or even maybe have gone over it. I mean, I would love to say that, yep, that's exactly what we were doing. And it was a deliberate choice in our part because every other word was so carefully crafted in this text <laughs> that there was a reason behind its inclusion or exclusion. But I can't say that in this instance. Um, I think perhaps, I mean, the, that they were provocative, yes, that's why they win. Was a deliberate move to sort of emphasize the precarious sort of knife edge you walk on and when doing particularly any sort of race theme comedy. I, I don't think I can claim that. Can you, Regina, for that part? Yeah. No, I I do think that there is something um, not to not to sound too woo woo about it, but I think that there is some sort of intangible knowledge or um, realization of the importance of a moment in time and the people that are representing that moment. And so I think that exactly the sense that, that you're identifying about how, how fraught comedy uh, can be and who are some of the folks in the last while that 
um, that would be names that people would be familiar with and also have some sense of the, the realm in which they wander, right? That to, to talk about in that chapter. All right, so backing up just a little bit uh, near the beginning of the book, you do offer your definition of an anti-racist spirituality, but before you do, now here is an intentional list of names that you offer, and you give us three vignettes of, I think it's three or is it four? Mm -hmm. Of Okay, just three, okay. Uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, Medgar Evers, and Anne, and see, so this is why I wanted to ask us because I was like, why did we, who, who, why did you choose who you chose? Because two I knew, I know of, but the third, Anne, and, I, and then the last name has just left my head. That's, I do, I'm not even aware of Braden. her in particular. Braden, there we go. Thank you. Yeah. I was not familiar with her story. And was that, is that normal? Like, is that, you're finding that to be true that uh, Anne's story is maybe less well known than the other two? And so let's amplify that voice or, um, or was there another reason for choosing Anne? Well, I mean, I, I think I can claim responsibility for including her voice. Um, I really wanted to have an example of a white person who was able to do the work of anti-racism, bringing spiritual resources to bear and do it with integrity. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty small, cadre of people to select from. And she has had such universal respect for the work she did. I had the opportunity to be on a committee with her once and was just amazed by the wisdom she brought into the room. And so I think in some circles, she is more well-known, but in sort of broad, sort of the broad populace, I think finally um, Mrs. Hamer and Medgar Evers have gotten their due and Braden, probably not to the same extent, but that was the reason for including her presence there. It wasn't so much that she wasn't known as I wanted to bring a voice of integrity to the room for that some of that modeling that can happen. Mm -hmm. mm. All right, you also include the, uh, I wanna talk a little bit about the tornado story and what it serves in the, uh, the role of setting up anti-racist spirit, uh, spirituality and, and it, how you use it as an example. So the tornado story, I don't want to spoil for people who are going to buy the book, but it, it's clearly a story that is still sticking with you. And yet you make a point to say it's not, it doesn't stick with us at the same time. Can you, can you um, unpack that a little bit for me? Why it's important? Like, okay, this is an important story, but you know what, at the same time, and you even use this phrase for other stuff, it's, it's unimportant and important at the same time. You want to go after that first? I will. I, I'll speak to it a little bit. I was not at that training, but it has become so much a part of then Damascus Road, now Roots of Justice lore that I feel like I was there. And there have been parallel experiences in different places. And I think that, um, that we go into some of those in other places. But for me, the importance of sharing that story, one of the importances of, of telling that story um, is to say that it, it, it can be wildly difficult to do this work under the best of circumstances 
but it is possible to do this work and to keep coming back to it. And that's been so important for me to keep coming back to it, even when it seems like everything in the universe is conspiring against you to, to get this stuff done. Um, I, I love the way that when we are together with our colleagues who share these stories with us, the way that it's, you know, it really is like a family reunion where you hear, um, you know, grandpa and grandma tell those same stories over and over again, but everybody's just like riveted because it's like, this is what we do. This is what made us who we are. And so this story has a, um, in all of its wildness, it has this sacred quality to it because it belongs to us. And it also is a testament to um, how we got over, right? How we made it through and kept coming back for more. So Tobin, you were there. Yeah, all right. I'll let the story in the book tell itself, but I think in answer to your question and to build upon what Regina just said, the story is important because any movement needs to have its own narrative. Regina used the term lore, it's the same idea that we, we need to have the stories that we tell to each other to sustain us in order to create new ones. Mm -hmm. So that's the importance of it. I think the, the reason we say it's unimportant is we don't wanna to begin to suggest that the effectiveness of our work is defined by how controversial a given event was that we were involved in. Yep. That happens, but it doesn't mean it's more effective because we had that level of controversy. So just, um, I guess, two weeks ago now, I did a Zoom talk for the organization that that story is about, Mennonite Central Committee. And the day before I gave the talk, the person who had invited me had just finished reading Been in the Struggle. Honestly, we haven't actually said the name of our book yet, Been in the Struggle, Pursuing an Anti-Racist Spirituality. And her comment to me was, I can't believe you actually came back because of all the stuff that had happened in that, that room at that time. Mm -hmm. Someone else commented to us who was alongside in the midst of some of the events we talk about this book that he said, I was really grateful that you told those stories without rancor. Mm -hmm. And that was very meaningful for me to hear that coming from a, you know, someone who was not involved in the writing of the book that we had been able to recognize the importance of the stories and the events on their own terms, mm -hmm. but didn't need to tell them to somehow score points mm -hmm. against uh, about the people with whom we were involved. I mm -hmm. think that had integrity. We sure tried to make it have integrity, yeah. um, but it was also sort of hard to do it at points because mm -hmm. those were very real events with very real emotions. Some of them would still stick with us, with, at least I'll say for myself, still stick with me. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah. One aspect of the unimportant part too, that I picked up on was that while you, you know, unique to you and unique to that particular entity, the MCC and that particular situation, it also is something that is always happening, you know, <laughs> all over the place. So it's unimportant because it's not unique. It's not like this doesn't stick out really. Like uh, how many times have you since then been with other institutions and had very similar um, interactions? Exactly. 
Um, <clears throat> so Craig, Craig chuckled at something that you said there, and I, I wasn't sure what it was that, but, uh, I, I wanted to highlight that, but he found something funny, something about controversy and <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, Craig, you did. Okay. He didn't wave at me, so that's all right. I'll let him off the hook. Okay. there. <laughs> yes. I apologize for not mentioning uh, the name of the, the title of your book yet, by the way. Thanks for bringing it up. <laughs> He's doing our work. He carried the, the, the host's job there. Yeah, so you want to say the title of the book? Yeah, the yes. whole title? <laughs> Craig, you got it? It's right. Yeah. Been in the struggle, pursuing an anti-racist spirituality. Right on. There, there we go. There we go. He got it. All right. Yeah. <laughs> we'll probably reference yeah. it again later on. Yeah. You know, one thing I did. We're very wanted, informal. I, w- I wanted to Let chime in and, and speak for a little while before I start coughing about some of that, that you know, as a Mennonite, reading uh, your experiences with different Mennonite institutions, I find myself going, oh, I think I know who they're talking about. <laughs> Maybe that's what it was. <laughs> or if I about. don't, I, I know the type of person they're talking about. But the other thing, the way you tell the stories is it's not um, inside baseball. It's not just stuff that Mennonites do or Anabaptists get. This is, this is pervasive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's one of the things that I appreciated, at least from my perspective, is it seems this isn't limited to our, our bad behavior. Uh, it's, it's, it is persistent. Mm-hmm. And, and Regina, specifically, I was thinking about how do you weather that? Because the Mennonite church, you know, it's been the last 20 to 30 years that it's really begun to open up space for women Mm-hmm. But it's still predominantly, it thinks of itself as a Russian, Prussian, German, Swiss culture. And, you know, when I came along and they didn't know what to do with the fact that I was Scottish, they had, you know, were confused. But, um, you know, how, how was that for you to keep pushing uh, through? Yeah, it's, um, it is another one of those things that with the passage of time, it's sort of like, yeah, that's, that's a thing. And um, it was, yeah, I can, I can, I can remember moments where, um, I suspect that people questioned, um, whether or not I was a real Mennonite and probably would not have said, well, no, it's not because you're black, but did you go to a real Mennonite? You know, all of those kinds of things doesn't really bother me anymore. Um, but um, because I teach at a Mennonite college and because there are, uh, I do have students of color who are Mennonite, um, there is a recognition in some of the struggles that they go through with that, um, that, you know, what's, what's my real identity? What are, what are the expectations that people have of me? And as I'm talking it out, I think that's the thing that that has felt over the years for me most um, perplexing and probably irritating is that um, there are lots of ways to be any identity. And the particular struggle, I think that that some of our um, very identity driven faith communities like Mennonites are, is on the one hand, that's the thing that, that's one of the things that makes us really distinct, right? Um, And so I recognize that people want to hold on to that. 
And I've just been really um, glad over the probably past 20 years to see the attention that is being paid in um, what's been called in some places, the racial ethnic groups among the Mennonites, as if that's not all of us, right? Um, the, the, the interest in who we are and how we show up in, the, in, in Anabaptism and the claiming of our faith practices and the way we do church um, being something that is not weird. I'm sure it still is weird to some people, but, but understanding a more understanding for ourselves, whether anybody else understands that, that, yeah, I get to be Mennonite in this way. Um, and that's, and that's good. And that's fine. So one thing I noticed in the reading of the book was, um, that, more than once you mentioned a lot of people want to take, you know, racism down to um, more personal level rather than the institutional level. And I've, I found that to be true too. But when I objectively stand back and think about my own uh, life as a pastor, it kind of works in almost every other area. It works the other way when you're addressing, you know, problems like the more personal you get with people as a minister or pastor, the more they're like, the, the more uncomfortable they get, the more, uh, but with racism, for whatever reason, it's the, it's flipped. Um, and I have a theory about why that is. I've been thinking about it the last couple of days, but I wanted to hear what you think, why you think uh, it's, it seems to be the vice versa with this particular sin. So, I mean, I'll, I'll give a comment about the white community, which I think that observation most applies to. And it boils down to what Robert Terry, an early writer on issues of whiteness and white identity said, to be white in America is not to have to think about it. Where the experience of people of color is a requirement to think about racial identity on a daily basis, 24 seven, 365. But for those of us who are white, talking about the systemic reality is a requirement to talk about our collective racial identity and everything in our life tells us that it's uncomfortable to do that thing. Mm -hmm. If we keep it at the individual level, then it's just a function of, oh, do I have relationships? And I can talk about having relationships across racial lines without really having to deal with my racial identity as a white person, what that means in terms of being given privilege and power and, and uh, the ways that shapes me. The collective forces a conversation that the individual doesn't. And I think that's for at least the white community, why that is such a problematic and why that reversal happens. Yeah, and I think that uh, what we are experiencing now with this, this tremendous uh, pushback against critical race theory, which most people can't define, um, has to do with that dynamic. Um, it's going to make us look at how we got here and there might be some calls to accountability in recounting that history. And that's something that, um, that people, are, people are afraid of doing. I mean, I was gonna say people just don't wanna do, but I think that, there, that underneath that, there is this very real fear of losing something that um, that perhaps people don't even understand they're trying to hold on to. So my, <clears throat> my theory is that 
when you make it personal too, um, when we leave it in that realm, all I have to do is simply say, well, okay, okay, let's not worry about this big things. There's nothing I can do about that anyway. It's out there. It's beyond. I don't even know if it exists. Institutional racism. I don't even know if I can define it or see it. But I know on my level, I don't say these things. I don't do these things. I'm not racist. So ah, oh, that there, it's okay. If we leave it on the personal level, I, I can just check mark a few boxes. This is, you know, uh, oversimplified, but I'm, I'm okay. I don't, and exactly. maybe make a friend and, and that's all I have to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whereas if it's on the institutional level, it demands from all of us, right. To do some hard work, ground mm-hmm. grassroots all the way up to, and then of course we would be losing it because we have to camp everything in winners and losers. We would be losers if we give up this stuff. Yeah. All right. Absolutely. Okay. I might have to preach on that someday. <laughs> <laughs> I do like that you do recognize in the book, though, you, you say don't just set aside the personal, though. There's still a key and is very important um, to do. Uh, and in fact, in your final definition of um, not final definition, but final point in your definition of anti racist spirituality, you mentioned it's a unification of both clear eyed reckoning and measured compassion. And that measured compassion is very personal. What, what is, what, what, how do you, how do I, how do you, I don't know how I want to word this, but every institution is different, but a lot of times there's still a lot of the same. How do you, how do you handle a reckoning in a compassionate way? How do you two do it? is it best to talk about that in the context of Mennonite Central Committee for who figures prominently in the narrative lines of this book um I don't know what do you think Regina is that the context to talk about this in sure (laughs) they're not going to listen to our podcast anyway because I'm Methodist so (laughs) yeah there you go well, I mean, what does measured compassion and reckoning mean? I think often when we bring conversations about the historic and ongoing realities of racism at an institutional level, the calls are for immediately within the Christian community to talk about grace, right? to flip their first thing. And I think that has no integrity for the kind of work we're talking about. South Africa had the truth and reconciliation hearing process. I think that is, had some good stuff. I think there's highly problematic stuff within that, that model, but that at least was an attempt to put the reckoning first. Mm-hmm. I think there's a sequence to it that we can't talk about grace, which may be another theological expression for the idea of measured compassion. Um, we can't even bring that into the room until we've done a clear-eyed reckoning with what has happened. Um, we're doing some work with an institution that in the midst of an uh, anti-racism audit we did for them became very apparent that there was an unresolved issue within that institution in which the institution had not listened to voices of people of color who were still in the room. And 
we're going to be meeting with them in the next couple of weeks. And our main message is you can't do anything else until you've dealt with that because it's going to be an albatross around your neck for the foreseeable future until you've dealt with that reality. You've got to deal with it. You've not dealt with it. You have to. So I, I guess that's the, that's the, the first comment I'd have it offer is that clear-eyed reckoning comes first. Mm-hmm. And I think that the work that people need to do to get to that point is it really is digging through all the ways that people have been socialized to think about race, to think about difference, to think about the other that 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 maybe we don't even want to own, right? If it's that reckoning means that I have to acknowledge what I think when I see a person who looks like that come into the room. And that's really uncomfortable work. And I I watch people struggle with that while also um, denying that it is in fact a struggle. And that's fine. It's not, it's not a, it's not a thing of me looking from the outside and saying, oh, you just don't want to, you just don't want to admit like you think race, racist thoughts, but um, that socialization into the, the only personal part of racism is so strong that even when people are given the opportunity to understand the history, given the opportunity and have taken the opportunity and worked with understanding systemic oppression and how it works and how it's, it's, it's been in play forever. Um, even when people have done that intellectual work, it's still really hard to own it and face how it works in our own or their own or my own day to day. Like there's there's something about making that move to, and this is how it sh- it, it has showed up. This is how it has shown up in my family, in my school, in my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and bridging that gap, for me, thinking about that word compassion, um, I always want to be doing this work, anti-racism work and anti-oppression work in general, in a way that is compassionate, most days I want to do that. I'm human. Some days I just want to like, you know, <laughs> you know, um, but then I, I try to be my better self most days. And the, the coming back again and again to being in that place of wanting to be kind, but also to be, you know, it's that pastoral prophetic thing that we're, we're, always trying to do and not wanting to go too far in either direction because to do that doesn't serve the outcome that we're trying to have sufficiently. That's a lot of work. And so if it's still that much work um, for me, um, not that I'm, you know, better than anybody else, but as speaking of someone who's been doing this for a long time, yeah bringing back that, um, 
that compassionate aspect of the work in ways that suit the work we're trying to do. And also being compassionate to my own, my own self. Um, yeah. That's good. <clears throat> One thing I definitely appreciate. So we um, are, I'm a pastor of two churches and we've been doing about a year now, a little over a year now, we've done some studies um, with books that are uh, centered on anti-racist themes. And we've come to a point where like, we're not entirely sure, like we can keep reading more books, but like, what do we now do? Like, especially in our context, again, it's still very, I mean, 97% why it's a Pacific Northwest and it's even more Pacific. It's, it's inland Pacific Northwest. So it's very, very uh, white culture. And so we've, we, we're not sure exactly where we go next with that, but I appreciate in your uh, chapter here near the end, you talk about um, institutional transformation and you say to anticipate three uh, paradigm shifts. The first one being, you know, you, you may have to have people understand and recognize shift away from thinking racism is a past thing. It's still going on. And that's kind of along the lines of naming, you know, naming what's actually going on and what's real. But you also mentioned there that you two don't spend so much time on that one anymore. Um, maybe is it because it takes just too much energy to even get people on that one? Or is it just like, it's so well established now. Like, why do we need to spend time on that? Mm -hmm. My quick answer to that is um, I set some boundaries around the work that I'm willing to do. And I made a decision for myself um, some years ago that sort of racism 101 stuff is not worth my time because I wanna be about that next level of it. And because there are people who are still doing that right. and I wanna bless them and, and, and keep them doing it. But yeah, I just, um, in terms of thinking about where where's my best energy gonna go? Uh, it felt like for me, that wasn't the, best use of my energy at this point. And that's fair. Yeah, I have a some, somewhat similar response to Regina, although it reminds me of a conversation I had with one of my students, a young white woman just this morning, who came up and asked me, what do you do when someone just denies that racism is a thing at all? And, you know, my response to her was, you know, <laughs> like Regina, I'm at a point in my career where those folks just don't usually come up and talk to me about this stuff. I mean, it just, it just doesn't happen a lot of white people are a little scared of me and that's just a sort of weird wrinkle to this whole thing. <laughs> but at any rate, you know, I said, it's an act of willful ignorance at this point to say that racism is not a reality. And I understand there may be reasons that someone has been sort of trapped by conspiracy theory, whatever else it is, but every major economic, educational, social indicator in this country is makes it very clear that one's racial identity is the primary determiner of success or failure. Mm -hmm. And we, we've got decades of data. And if you don't want to have your argument or perspective driven by data, I, I don't know what to talk to you about. I mean, I just, we have to have some ground rules that we're actually going to be driven by the evidence. And mm -hmm. yeah, I, I think there are people who are able to be very effective in that work, even to the point of finding ways to reach folks who have been 
um, trapped by white supremacist ideology and hate groups and that there are folks who do that and do it well. Mm -hmm. That's just not where we're, our calling is, I think, for the kind of work we're doing right now. Yeah. Almost the sense, too, of like, if that's where people are uh, right now, if they're in that, if that's the shift they really need to work on, that paradigm shift, then what your work is geared for, that's, I'm not going to say next level stuff, but I'm just saying, like, maybe that's the next uh, phase of institutional transformation, right? Is <laughs> if you're still in the, in the phase of, even acknowledging exists, then right. you're not yeah. quite ready <laughs> for our. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So Craig, uh, do you have any questions? We're at our one hour spot. Is there, what do you want to do? Where do you so, want to go, buddy? Well, I think one of the things we probably should do Cody is um, I, you know, we've, we, we've had this conversation with Tobin, the, but I think it's time to like for you to, put uh, regina in the hot seat hot ask, seat time you think so i think so yeah okay. hot seat time all right. okay all right all right regina are you ready for this i hope so <laughs> <laughs> i don't think you're ready but we're gonna bring it all okay. right here we go these okay. are the five questions we ask every guest and tobin's already answered these so he's off the hook i'm off the hook regina <laughs> <laughs> all right here we go question number one regina what are you drinking? So what's your go-to drink or even what's at hand right now? What is your standby drink or uh, just, I'm always got this drink ready to go. What time of day is it? <laughs> right now, <laughs> noon. Oh no, I guess two, two o'clock here. Actually, what time is it there for you? It's, it's almost five o'clock. Oh um, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have water right now, of course. (laughs) So, uh, coffee in the morning, water throughout the day and, uh, Chardonnay at night. There we go. That's what (laughs) we wanted to hear. All right. Question number two, what are you reading? So it can be a new book you're reading right now or, or an old book. You always like to go back to, it can be a magazine or an online journal or a blog. What are you reading? Okay, what I am reading right now is a young adult novel called They Both Die at the End, and I'm loving it. So, <laughs> Spoiler alert, in the title. I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's really good. Oh, so awesome. I'll let okay. people love it. Um, look that up. They Both Die at the End. Okay, yeah. now question number three. What are you listening to? So it could be music, new music, old music. It can be a podcast that you think everybody should check out. It could be a lecture, maybe that you have an audio book. Okay. So in one of my classes, we just had our last meeting today, uh, but we got in the habit of starting class with music and, um, and because two very important to us for various reasons, albums came out in the last uh, couple of weeks, um, Adele's. 30 came out. Are we obsessed? Yes, we are. (laughs) (laughs) And then, and then Silk Sonic's um, uh, album came, came out Bruno Mars and Anderson Pack and and their band. Are we even more obsessed? Yes, we are. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Those both sound really good too. All right. Question number four, 
What are you watching? So it could be, what are you binging right now on Netflix or Hulu or Prime? What YouTube channel do you think everybody should check out or a documentary you think people should uh, be watching? What are you watching? What am I watching watching or what am I hate watching? Let's go <laughs> oh, with hate watching. Okay. <laughs> um, succession. Hate watching it. It's, 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 uh, it's rich people. It's, it's terrible rich people. Need I say more? <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, is it on, uh, is it on like a Netflix or? It's, Hulu it's or? on um, HBO. Oh, okay. 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 Yeah. Succession. Okay. Mm-hmm. Sure, and I just not... started watching that this weekend. It's addictive. Right. Ooh. Are you, uh, oh, but okay. So um, I chose one, but what I, what, what I have been love watching is um only murders in the building. Yes. I love fictional murder. So there you go. But yeah, right? Right? Yeah, it's a good one. We like yeah. that one. Yeah, that's that's fun. That's good. Did you get to the end? Not yet. Nope. Don't spoil oh, okay. it. Right? Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Very cool. I like that. Okay. And fifth question. And this is the most important question. Craig and I show up at your doorstep. Where are you taking us for dinner? Oh, well, since I'm not going to restaurants right (laughs) now, there you go. I guess I have to cook. (laughs) (laughs) And so I would probably make um, a pot of chicken curry if you're if you're meat eaters. Um, I would adjust if you were not. But yeah, just not doing restaurants yet. Fair. I get that. Yes. Um, Cause every time you start, did you, was there a point where you started to feel come maybe and then nope now we're, yeah, that's where yeah, we're, we're yeah, going through yeah. too. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, so I will tell you, we went to the other night, um, Sunday night, we went to our first big event in quite a long time. And it was, um, it was in, um, it was in a stadium and it was, uh, Trevor Noah at, uh, Kennewick. <gasps> Yeah, we had canceled everything else, but this one we were like, we got to, yeah. we got to go yeah. to this. So we did yeah. go to it, but it was, you know, sitting there, we were, uh, we had enough room in front, no problem, but side to side, I was like, what are we doing? <laughs> right. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Well, those are our five questions. Those okay. weren't so bad. You That's survived so bad. the. You survived the hot seat very well. So, right. so those questions aren't so bad, but the last one is a commitment. That's uh, yes, so right. Just so you know. Oh, okay. Okay. It's, it's, I got you. It's not speculative or theoretical. So. I mean, so far it has been kind of speculative and theoretical. Have we had it? Have we followed up with anybody yet and gotten those mails? <sighs> you know, we really haven't. Yeah. Post-COVID goals. Post-COVID goals. All right. Well, the book again is Been in the Struggle a, uh, by Regina Stoltzfus and Regina, um, Dr. Stoltzfus, Regina Stoltzfus and Tobin Miller Scherer. And we appreciate you being on here with us and guiding us through a little taste of anti-racist spirituality and uh, institutional transformation and pop culture and food and all the good stuff. Our Thanks pleasure. So Thanks for inviting us. Well, it's great to be back in touch with you again, Tobin and Regina. It's great to meet you. Yeah, same. Likewise.
Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thanks for joining Cody Stauffer and me, Craig Morton, for this podcast. We simply try to record and upload without much editing. What you get is live conversation with all its ignorance and insight, wisdom, and foolishness, sometimes more of one than the other, and occasionally profound things will be said, but entirely by accident. Make sure to follow us on Facebook at the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast. We'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment. And look for upcoming Facebook Live podcasts where you can interact with our guests. Also, we can be found on Twitter as at All That's Holy. Our intro and outro music is by At The Speed Of Darkness. Support At The Speed Of Darkness on Bandcamp and buy his music there, as well as follow him on Instagram at At The Speed Of Darkness. 